Thanks to our listeners, Issues Etc. has operated independently and in the black for 15 consecutive years. Please help us cover our expenses again this year by making a year-end financial gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for your support at the end of 2023. Many myths persist about the historic liturgy, many of them perpetuated by people who should know better but apparently don't, that the liturgy is the product of Western European culture, that it's, well, that's not really been the practice of the church from the very beginning, that the earliest Christians had sort of free-form worship and the best forms of worship today would emulate that. So those myths exist. We know why they exist. What are the advantages of the historic liturgy, the liturgy that has persisted not only throughout the entire Christian era, but has its roots in the Old Testament as well. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Joining us to talk about the advantages of the historic liturgy, Dr. John Bombaro. He's Director of Theological Education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and he's author of a column titled Liturgical Top Ten. John, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Todd. How do you respond to someone who says, and this is really a very common view, sadly, even among us Lutherans who have embraced the historical liturgy historically, that the historical liturgy is really just a holdover from white European culture, and it's a hindrance to evangelism today. It's more or less irrelevant in American culture. Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is that's a a miscategorization entirely. First of all, the liturgy originates really with the origins of humanity. So it belongs to all of humanity, as we see in the garden, and then continuing on with Noah and his descendants. The liturgy is is expanded and defined with greater purposes under Judaism in the Old Testament. And more than anything else, it comes to us from our Lord Jesus Christ in many of the aspects that remain with us today, from holy baptism to holy absolution, supremely holy communion. Many of the the songs that we sing in the liturgy have continued on from the time of the synagogue to the present. I think the other thing, too, that needs to be said is that when we look back at the ancient and historical liturgy, so far from being a white Anglo-Saxon or white European phenomenon, much of the liturgy was developed in North Africa, in the Middle East, and even as far east as as India. If you were to take a a trip to India today, you would find parishes that uh, were reputedly established by St. Thomas and the Indians there. So I think, one, we have a, a total miscategorization. And the other thing to say is that it's not so much a power structure as it is a delivery system. It isn't for wielding control over the masses, Rather, it's how the Lord becomes intimate with his people, how he draws near to us. He is the Holy One, and he has established means for cleansing and sanctifying us that we may have greater closeness, intimacy, communication, and bonding with him. So when we're talking about the the liturgy, what we're not talking about is a style of worship. Rather, we're talking about a theology of worship. 
And the theology of worship is defined by the Lord himself. He has given us the liturgy that's been bequeathed to the church, and we have a responsibility to pass it on from generation to generation because this is the very means by which the Lord comes to us. I want to say one other thing, and that is I think there are some distinctions that need to be made that may help, and that is when we talk about the liturgy, we're talking about something that is ensconced in Scripture, the word liturgia appears in the New Testament 14 different times under various cognates. In other words, it's, it's inbuilt to the scriptures. It's inbuilt to the new covenant. And then we make a distinction between the liturgia, that which is God's service to us, how he comes and serves us himself, serves us with his benefits and all that Christ has accomplished and won for us. And they come to us through particular rites. The rites with which we employ here in the West are the Western rites. You know, they have their ancient heritage going back to the Roman rite. But even that has elements that have come from the synagogue, from North Africa, and elsewhere. And then at the third level are uh, ceremonies. And it's really at the point of ceremonies where things you know, can be a bit indifferent, or alternatively, that we have differences with respect to the manifestation of the particular rites. What's non-negotiable, however, is the liturgy itself, the liturgia, and the rites by which God makes himself known to us, shows his care and love for us, heals us, and meets with us. Uh, that's through the liturgy in these particular rites, which have uh, unique historical developments with respect to the ceremonies. But even ceremonies themselves are not entirely indifferent because they carry an entire universe of meaning. And the more learned we are, the, the more trained we are in the liturgy's rites and ceremonies, the more informed we are about what God is doing and why he is doing it. In other words, even the ceremonies themselves tend to be, on the whole, meaning-laden from Holy Scripture and packed with great theology Picking up right there, you said that the liturgy connects us with thousands of years of Jewish and Christian history. Yes, that's right. And it does. Uh, and it's because there are parts of the liturgy that we have an employee even today, like the Sanctus, for example. And the singing of the Sanctus is the ancient song that goes back to the time of Isaiah and presumably much before that. It's a song that's sung in heaven. And that has remained with us to this day. Or take, for example, the creeds of the church. We have the old Roman creed, which develops into the Apostles' Creed by the end of the second century, to be sure, which itself is further expanded upon in the nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, and then the Athanasian Creed, which comes a bit later. In confessing these creeds, we are saying what the church has always confessed and believed and taught to be true about God's words and such. And that's the say nothing about the great hymnody of the church, which goes, again, all the way back into the Hebrew scriptures and, and many songs that were developed straight from the New Testament canon itself, whether it be the Magnificat or the Benedictus. These are songs, canticles, lifted right from Holy Scripture. And the thing is about them is that they're timeless and for all generations. Even the prayers that are employed, like the Lord's Prayer, was uttered by Jesus himself and put into the very mouth of the apostles and then prayed by the church in an unbroken fashion all the way to this day. And so in employing the liturgy, in, in embracing it and understanding that, it defines us in a great respect 
that we are part of a, a great family. We're part of a, a universal church that transcends time and place. How does the liturgy serve as a line of demarcation? Well, the liturgy, if we talk about uh, the uh, the defining right for what distinguishes a person as a Christian or, or non-Christian is it's holy baptism. It's right there from the beginning. It shows us those who are initiated into this holy faith, those who have confessed and, and received the holy baptism and are declared to be a Christian, a son and daughter of the Lord, and that done in, in, in the public setting during the divine service or mass itself. And that creates a line of demarcation between those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are, are outside of the kingdom of God. And remember that line is an important line because the Lord desires that all be within his kingdom, his kingdom in which Christ rules with grace, mercy, truth, peace, and love, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he does through his word and his sacraments. I had mentioned in the article that you know, the former Yale professor of divinity, George Lindbeck, had noted how communities are defined by their nomenclature and by their cult. And, you know, we get a little squirmy about this word cult, but it's, it's the word that gives us the word culture. And what is the cult of the church? What is the cult that has nomenclature around it, which defines it? And ultimately, it is the, the sacrament and the holy word of God. The culture of the church is a church of attentiveness and devotion to God's holy word and to his sacraments. And so those who are not committed to those things, and especially where they're preserved within the liturgy in their full integrity, with the very vocabulary that defines Christianity as such, in an unbroken fashion, reaching all the way back, not only to the time of our Lord Jesus and, and his first followers, um, but even to the Old Testament church. It's, it creates that line of demarcation that says, hey, this is where God is present, and this is how he is present for you, and you are invited to come into this to be part of this enlarged family. So it's, it's an important line of demarcation, but one that has a wide open door of, of welcome. And this line of demarcation, I think, is important, too, with respect to the idea of specificity. We know where the Lord is at. We know what he is saying and doing, particularly within the liturgy, because it's been bequeathed to us from the Lord himself in Holy Scripture and in real human history during the advent of our Lord. You say that the liturgy is both theological and Christological. What are you saying there? Well, because it allows God to have his say. He speaks to us, and then we respond. And the beautiful thing about the liturgy is that we respond back with his word. And as Norman Nagel had said, we respond back with his word, saying that which is most certain and true. Sometimes when I'm teaching a course called Loving the Liturgy, as I'd done out at St. Matthew's on Kauai or Grace Lutheran in San Diego or Blessed Sacrament up in Idaho, this is an important point, you know, that we are saying back to God what is most certain and true, rather than singing songs like, I will seek you in the morning and I will walk in all of your ways. That's not true. We don't do that. We begin like Scripture begins. You know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our name is in the help of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Boom, we begin right with creation. And then we go right into confession. If we confess our sins to the Lord, he's faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. Now we're making confession, and on the basis of what God has done for us to reconcile us through Jesus Christ, we get the words of absolution to follow there. 
So the theology, the logic of God and his relationship to humanity is inbuilt to the liturgy. And it is Christological because the self-giving of God and the reconciliation of humanity to God occurs only in and through Jesus Christ. So the liturgy is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit event that takes place in real human history in a really specified time so that, again, we may know where God is and what he is doing to us and for us. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're discussing the advantages of the historical liturgy with Dr. John Bambaro, Director of Theological Education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, and author of a column titled Liturgical Top Ten. Dr. Bambaro is also a commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve Chaplain Corps. Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate chaplains deliver word and sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families. Learn more about their vital service at lcms.org slash armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. On the other side, we'll talk about how the liturgy teaches. Thanks to our listeners, Issues Etc. has operated independently and in the black for 15 consecutive years. Please help us cover our expenses again this year by making a year-end financial gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for your support at the end of 2023. Our children are always a blessing to us, but not only are we blessed by them, but we have opportunities to bless them as well. Pastor Christopher Nuttleman in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the topic of blessing your children, how to bless them in your home with the word of God and prayer. To learn more, pick up your copy of the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe or visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. For more than 100 years, Emmanuel Lutheran Church has been confessing the faith, proclaiming the gospel, administering the sacraments, and caring for our neighbors in the city of Houston, Texas. At Emmanuel, you will find services using the liturgy, lectionary, and hymns of the church, and Bible studies devoted to understanding God's Word. We also offer a day school for students aged 18 months through pre-kindergarten. Emmanuel is located at 306 East 15th Street, Houston, Texas. You can find us on the web at emmanuelhouston.org. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His Office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take this step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu. CUChicago.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. Christological. My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. 
historical. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by... Sacramental. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins. To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church. The Advantages of the Historical Liturgy. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest. He's authored a column titled Liturgical Top Ten. John, how does the liturgy teach? Well, the thing about the liturgy is that it's kind of like the, the master of repetition, but not with, you know, sort of a boring element to it because we're following the church calendar and each week the texts are different. Each week, it's like this multifaceted diamond that's being turned, you know, 52 weeks. And even during the midweek service is 142 times here, plus all the other Holy Week occasions and, you know, the great festival of Christmas and stuff. There are hundreds of facets to this diamond and it's being turned for us, but we're engaged in things that allow us to enter into it and participate because we have overlearned them. And overlearning it is this uh, way of, of doing something so that you don't have to be taught it again. So, for instance, and I have to admit, I haven't practiced my ABCs in a while, but I actually don't need to do so because I overlearned them in my youth. At any given time, I can say my ABCs or my multiplication tables, that sort of thing. Likewise, with the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, singing the Sanctus or the Agnus Dei, they're now inbuilt. So much so that this wonderful teacher of the liturgy, which writes God's word on our hearts and commits it to memory because much of it is given to song or to plain chant. And so by these mnemonic devices, they stay with us for life to the point that I can approach someone who is at the end of their life, uh, someone perhaps who, who is even you know, suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, and just begin with these words, Lord Jesus, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. And immediately the words of the Lord's prayer come to their lips. The liturgy is a good teacher because it teaches us good, beautiful, and true things. And yeah, and it, and it comes to us in the drama of redemption, which happens right in the middle of the divine service. The divine service is itself the drama of redemption taking place with specificity in the particular. It's happening on this Sunday, right here in the midst of us. So the liturgy is this great teacher, not only teaching us things from Holy Scripture, but also enlarging our Christian worldview, giving us a biblical literacy, a theological literacy, and because it employs things like movement and ceremony and art, architecture and iconography, it really heightens our intellectual ability to discern who God is, what he is doing, the dynamic of being within God's church, all of that is taking place in this great literacy, which is the divine service. Does the liturgy cross cultures and generations? 
Oh, most certainly. And I think that's the, one of the most beautiful things about it. It's that it's a total family ordeal. Children from the age of one and a half, two, you'll find them reciting the Lord's Prayer with their parents, grandparents, even great-grandparents. It gives us words that we can all share in and celebrate together. And it meets our needs no matter where we are in whatever station of life without dumbing things down or, or making them too heady. God has brilliantly, uniquely given us a liturgy, put his word into it, put his presence into it to satisfy the needs of every longing heart who come to him. So in this way, the liturgy is this multi-generational event that even the smallest of children and the most senior amongst us, or even the most preoccupied. You know, I have visions of even my own wife coming up to the altar for Holy Communion with four kids, you know, like an infant in one arm, a toddler in the other, two hanging on and such. And yet it's all for her and for the children. And, and she's engaged at any point. This is the body of Christ given for you. Amen. There's the liturgical response. That's the affirmation of faith, the declaration that this is in fact true. He is here and I'm receiving him. The whole family can enjoy the liturgy at any given time, which is why it should be within the catechetical structure of the family home. What does it mean that the liturgy allows us to rest? Well, it allows us to rest because we don't have to invent new things. You know, there, there's this sort of like tyranny of the contemporary, coming up with fresh ideas and the church of what's happening now. We don't have to do that because the liturgy is provided for us throughout the entire year. And with the various lectionary cycles that we have, whether it be the three year or the one year, or if you put them together, you've got four years of lectionary preaching. And even within each one, there are three years worth in terms of preaching. The one-year lectionary, you can preach the Old Testament, the epistle, or the gospel, or even indeed the psalm. And four years worth of preaching in and through the scriptures there, in the cycle of the life of Christ. And then it is uh, impacts us or is bonded to us because we are united to Christ in faith and uh, through holy baptism. So it allows us the rest in that you don't have to worry about, I wonder what pastor will come up with this week. Or I wonder what kind of crazy antic may take place. Will he juggle, crack eggs on his heads, or roll out onto the quote-unquote stage on a motorcycle? What kind of new titillating thing will be splashed up on the screens that keep our attention? We know that we're going to go with the liturgy to be in the presence of God and that notwithstanding the homiletical abilities of the pastor, how eloquent he may or may not be, the one thing that we know will always take place is that Jesus will speak to us in the reading of the Holy Gospel, that God is addressing us in all of the scriptures, that we will have words of holy absolution that come from the lips of our Lord in and through his called and ordained servant, and that Jesus Christ will be present in Holy Communion meeting with us there. How much more so when you have a pastor, a Lutheran pastor who's trained to properly distinguish law and gospel and to proclaim both from the pulpit. It literally can be and has been within our tradition, heaven on earth, for those who've had respect and given deference to the liturgy as the means by which God comes to us and addresses us. How important is it that what takes place in the liturgy takes place outside of us. It is external 
certainly not excluding the internal, but it is primarily external. Well, I think it's critically important because it tells us to get out of ourselves and to understand that we're part of the church, that this isn't my private devotional time with Jesus. You have that on your time. What the liturgy does is bring us in, particularly in the corporate setting, to engage how God addresses all of his people in the midst of his kingdom, the king with his kingdom people. That it gets me outside of myself, tells me that I'm not going to be the final interpreter of the, of the word, but I will hear from God's ambassador, the preacher. I have to get my eyes off of what my issues may be, or that indeed I will be the cure to myself, and instead I come to the and receive in the Holy Eucharist, I receive him who is the medicine of immortality. You know, it constantly gets my eyes off of myself in a way that puts the focus always on listening to God and being in his presence and allowing him to do what he does so that I'm not tempted to slip into the deceit of self-sufficiency. Rather, the liturgy is constantly telling us that our sufficiency is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And this is why the liturgy is, is best done with family, best done in the church. But even your devotions, if they, with this liturgical dynamic with them, one of the things that you'll notice is that God is constantly addressing you with his word in a sensible, and not only in a sensible way, but in a way that has semblance to it as well, giving this God of great order in an orderly way addressing us. You see, the number one reason why we extol and practice the historical liturgy is because it is the Word of God, and I think this is one of the things, it occurs to me almost every Sunday in the course of conducting the divine service, that this is nothing more, nothing less than Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. My wife and I, when we first came into the Lutheran Church living in Cambridge in England, we went into Resurrection Lutheran Church and uh, first Sunday, we had been worshiping in the evangelical and Reformed traditions. And it struck us when we left that in one divine service, we had heard more Holy Scripture than we had in months in the other traditions. And then with the Lutheran service book, I love that they added this dynamic that they've annotated all the scriptures that are being referenced in the uh, dialogue we have with the Lord in and through the liturgy. In other words, it just turned out to be scripture upon scripture. We were being washed over in God's word constantly. And then we found ourselves singing it at home. And what we were doing was singing scripture. We were singing back to God again, that which is most certain and true. And then we found it in the lips of our children from their earliest years. The beautiful liturgy put to music. We were hearing God speaking to us and we were speaking back to him, his own word. And this was Honestly, it changed our lives. It brought us into a deeper intimacy and union with Christ, such that we had never experienced before, and quite frankly, such that we can never leave. Dr. John Bombaro was Director of Theological Education for Eurasia, for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and he's author of a column titled Liturgical Top Ten. You can read it on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. John, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, Todd. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Reed Lessing about a history of the land of Israel. We'll have Cantor Phil Magnus lead us in a teaching on church music for the care of souls. And we'll talk with Tim Carey 
about the creation of the world's largest stained glass window. The liturgy simply proclaims Christ in word and in gesture, in action. It delivers through that word and sacraments the very Savior of the world to us. That's why we retain the historic liturgy. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to 8th grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org.